0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are Bibles that you can find in the seats in front or behind you, and you can find today's passage on page 900. 1 Corinthians ten seven through 10, hear now the word of the Lord. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is the word of the Lord.
1: all right good morning everybody it's good to see you worship God with you and now share the word of God with you I just want to remind you that we have larger groups after service Uh, depending on your elder um, it you know the location and time can change and so please contact your local elder to see if you can uh, join the larger group today and so kick off our smaller group season that way uh, if you're not part of a smaller group and large group, and if you would like to join, then you can talk to any one of the elders, and I'm sure we can make arrangements, including myself. I'm having it right across from here after service in the multi-purpose room. So you can do that as well. I'm excited to start this uh, new season of smaller groups, and I hope you are as well. Uh, let's start with a prayer. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, and strength to follow on the path you set before us. Through Jesus Christ, amen. If you believe that we live in uncertain times today, it is only because you do not believe that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And all the things that come to pass are ordained by Him. Nothing is outside of His authority or control, and everything is subject to His will. Now, some may be a little uncomfortable with these statements. After all, where does then free will fit in all this? If my, quote, unquote, free will is not free and indeed free of uh, God's complete control, am I not then reduced to a mere robot? You might even ask, should I not have the freedom to choose then even what is outside of God's will? These are the types of questions that I have gotten, and I'm sure that you may have also heard And these are the types of questions that people really have a hard time with. But what's interesting is that it's not so different from the questioning the serpent used to deceive Eve in the garden. He would go on to say to Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's the question, essentially, that we may be asking. Don't I have equal footing with God when it comes to my choosing? Or even, can't I overrule God when it comes to my will? In a sense, humanity from the beginning has been praying, my will be done instead of thy will be done. For the Christian, however, thy will be done. And the fact that we indeed live in certain times brings great comfort, even in times of great, albeit temporal, distress. If God is in control, and He is, then we can rest assured in His promises that He will work all things out for His glory And our good. And yes, this even applies to COVID. As shocking and as dastardly as that might sound. All rulers, presidents, governors, mayors, leaders are subject to God's authority and his regulations. And yet we see politicians and leaders rage against the precepts of God and go directly against His commandments. What are His commandments? To promote the worship of Jehovah, the one true and only God, and to protect the sanctity of human life. And as we have gone over last week, this sort of pride always, always, precedes the fall and when people stand in opposition to God's law it's not the law that breaks but they who charge against it and we have been going over in the first letter to the Corinthians and in it we see this sort of warning and admonition isn't only for the rulers and leaders outside but for those inside namely the church in the last two chapters, we have been going over Christian liberty and freedom that we have in Christ. And so I thought maybe we should go over a little bit about how Christians are free. As Jesus said in John 8:36, he said, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We are free in Christ because we have been freed in Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been set free. Your freedom is granted by God. And so, what are these freedoms? What kind of freedom do we have? There's at least three, and three big ones. Number one, we are free from the law. What law? The law of sin and death. As it says in Romans 8:2, for the law of the spirit of life is has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? In verse 6 of that chapter, Paul explains, For to set the mind of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. We have been freed from sin and death into life and peace. Number two, it also means we are freed from ceremonial laws. There's no more earning favor from God or rather doing things to appease his wrath. The people of God had to follow these customs to maintain a right standing with God. But now in Christ, these things are no longer necessary. In Colossians 2, 16, 17, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. These things pointed to Christ. That's why there is no more judgment if you don't keep the Sabbath. That means after this I can go to the golf range. I don't know, whatever it is. And there's no judgment in that. You are free from these kinds of ceremonial laws. Number three, a third thing that we can see is that Christians are free from the power of death and The fear of death. We see this in Hebrews 2.15. You know, Christians are free from the fear of death. We don't fear death because we have been freed from it in Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't avoid illness and disease when we can. That wouldn't be prudent or wise. And while we avoid it when we can, we don't fear death because death now is a step to finally seeing what Jesus meant when he said, let not your hearts be troubled. And that's a great line. That's a great line that Tolkien used also uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring when Lady Galandrio said that. Anyway, but that's just a great line. He got that from Jesus, who's better than Tolkien, but, or Lady Galandrio. But uh, this is what Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. We have been freed from the fear of death from the power of death in Jesus Christ. These are big things. These are gigantic freedoms. But there are more that stem from these things, like freedom from the penalty of sin, the curse of sin, because Jesus bore them on the tree for us. Freedom from all men as well, as we've studied in 1 Corinthians 9.19. We are free from men's traditions and rules, right? Right? And this freedom, who does, who does this freedom belong to? All the things that I've mentioned. Who does it belong to? It belongs to every single person in Christ. All Christians, this freedom belongs to. In fact, it says in Galatians 5.13 that we were called to freedom. Freedom is something that you have been called to possess. Freedom belongs to all Christians, not just some Not just the few, not just the mature, it's all Christians. There's this incorrect and immature notion that as you grew up in church, maybe this was you, I don't know, maybe you were young and you grew up in church. There's this incorrect and immature notion that the more devoted you become, the less freedom you have. This is untrue and, in fact, incredibly harmful. There aren't some that are more free than others. And even if you wanted to put that into place, it would be more logical to say that the more mature and more devoted would have more freedom, not less. But this fear of devotion... Because you think you lose freedom is illogical and absurd, not to mention unbiblical. But maybe this is how you grew up, perhaps because some shamanistic or Buddhist philosophies entered into our schools of thought. In college, I drove an old car, and when it was nearing the end of its life, I would have to take it into the body shop more often, the auto body shop. And the mechanic would tell me that this car was, you know, in fact, nearing the end of its life, to which I just simply responded, I guess it's then time to buy a new car. He would then proceed to tell me, but not a nice car, because you're a pastor's son. He knew that I was a pastor's son. So apparently, since I was a pastor's son, I couldn't get a nice car, because in his mind, pastors were less free. Pastors aren't less free. And this is what Paul was saying in chapter 9. I'm not less free because I'm an apostle. In fact, if anything, I should be considered more free. But obviously that's not the case. We in Christ are all free. There are people who will be jealous of the freedom that we have and try to re-enslave us, if that were even possible. But freedom belongs to us. It belongs to us, and we cannot give it up. Otherwise, we, as we'll see here, would confuse the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, yet it says, Paul is talking about the Judaizers here, but yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. If you give up your freedom willy-nilly, you will confuse the truth of the gospel. And you might be thinking, wait a minute. Didn't Paul give up his freedom that we've read last week? Didn't he take the Nazarite vow, a Jewish custom, And as you'll even see in other places, didn't he even circumcise Timothy? Then isn't he being a little inconsistent here? Paul only gave up his freedom when it was necessary to reach the people with the gospel. In order to spread the gospel, to reach a people unfamiliar with it, he would lay down his rights. He did it to win people to Christ. But you never give up your liberty needlessly or people will have a confused and distorted view of the gospel. And this is precisely what we see even today. You do it to win people to Christ. He had Timothy circumcised to win the Jews to Christ. But when it came to the Judaizers, these are people who claimed to be Christian and taught that it was necessary to follow Jewish customs and practices, Paul did not give them an inch. Now some of us may be trying to balance all of the things that have been taught that we have read in the last few weeks. If this is somewhat difficult, Perhaps this is why Paul spends multiple chapters on this topic alone. We, we the church, are to steward the freedom that belongs to us in Christ. Now there's an implication here than to steward and use our freedom well. The Bible shows us it's not an opportunity. You don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh but to serve one another. And so we've seen that there are ways then we can abuse this freedom. Paul will follow Jewish customs and laws when he wants to reach the Jews. But he absolutely won't do that when he's trying to reach the Gentiles. If he did that, he would be giving up his liberty and would just confuse them and confuse the gospel. So one way we saw the abuse of freedom is to do things then that would confuse or offend someone by doing something that's taboo in their culture. It's a clear abuse. It's a clear abuse when I am really saying with my heart, this, because I have this freedom in Christ, I can do whatever I want. I don't care what anyone thinks. And by doing these things, by saying these things in their heart, by doing these things, we saw these mature Christians trample on the weaker ones who were just coming into the faith. Many years ago in my mission training, the instructor taught my team that when we went to a village to abide by cultural norms that the African tribe that we were visiting lived by. And in this tribe, the men would hunt in the day and the woman would stay back. And she would tell us not to stir things up by insisting that women also go out and hunt and yada, 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 right? And it is true. While you may have the freedom to do something, to reach a tribe that has no idea about the freedoms you possess and can actually be insulted by your brandishing of it, you would lay down your rights for the sake of the gospel. And to that teaching, all of our team understood and complied. Well, what if it's even more obscure? Maybe even a little more vague than that. I heard of a missionary group that goes to a small village in Europe. And in this village, the women there, there did not shave their legs. Now, this may sound funny, but it's true. In most of the world, women obviously do. But in this remote village, they did not. And if you wanted to reach this group of people, would you lay down your freedom? And then you might be thinking, this is so dumb, right? It happens to be that in this particular place, only one kind of woman shaved their legs, and that was a prostitute. So when these missionaries ladies went and people in that village saw that their legs were shaved, it caused a lot of problems, a lot of confusion, because people there just didn't understand it. So that's the first kind of example that we see on how we can abuse our freedom when we use it to confuse and even harm others. And in the last two weeks, we've seen a second kind of abuse. It's in line with the first but distinct because this abuse of freedom will disqualify you from service. And we've most recently seen how As we've read last week, our fathers, right? Our fathers, meaning those in the desert wilderness, were given to us as examples of this kind of disqualification. One way to disqualify yourself is to complain, gripe, and murmur. Grumble. This includes people. This includes people who go, I don't mean to complain, but that's complaining. I'm not complaining, but that's complaining. You're literally complaining. This includes people like that. And this is what we read here. And we continue on in verse 7. Actually, verses 1 and 13 are just a complete passage and i split it up into three because each one is so chock full of examples that it would be a shame to miss any of the examples that were given to us in the scripture that we can be admonished by and in verse seven it says do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat drink rose up to play don't be idolaters what does that have to do with complaining Everything, as we'll see. Everything. And what does play mean? What's wrong with playing, right? The word for play here only occurs this one time in the Greek. Fortunately, we know what verse Paul is quoting. He's quoting Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. The word play there is used, and in the Hebrew Bible, in only one of two ways, really. One way is to mock or laugh at, to jest, right? That could be play, and there's another one, and that's, that's what this word play is referring to. It refers to a sexual nature, and we see it verified in the very next verse. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. After God had saved the Israelites from Egypt, he had given them salvation. Moses goes up to the mountain where we subsequently will see that he gets the Ten Commandments. But while he's up there, the people go to Aaron and tell him, make us Elohim. Make us God. Elohim is another name for God. and goes, make us God. And Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses, goes... No chance in Sheol. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He goes, all right, then give me the gold from your earrings. And they bring it to him. And then he makes a golden calf. He fashions a golden bull. And the people go, when they see the golden calf, this golden bull, they go, this is your Elohim who brought you up out of Egypt. This is your Elohim, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is the God who freed you. And then they start fornicating with each other. It's a massive orgy. That's what play means. Why did the Israelites do this? They knew that it wasn't a calf, who happens, by the way, to be an Egyptian god, that brought them out of Egypt. Egypt. Who brought them out of Egypt? It was Jehovah. They saw his mighty deeds. They witnessed the most incredible miracles. And they saw the feats of power by God himself. Why in the world would they want Aaron to make a golden calf? Because they lusted after evil, as it said. In verse 6. Yes, you may realize that God saved you, but you still lust after evil things. Of the Ten Commandments, idolatry and the making of idols are the top two for forbidden things, right? Why is it then that we in contemporary society think that these two are the least relatable to us? In fact, massive numbers of people are falling by the wayside because they are being disqualified because of idols. Why did the Israelites do what they did? Because they wanted to sin. They didn't find God's law beautiful or even good. Come on, we're free now. Let's act like it. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. In their freedom, they would go and not just eat meat given to idols. They would go as far as to view and participate in these idol ceremonies. It's okay, Idols aren't real and they would rationalize to themselves and then these lines would start to get blurred and you don't know what's up and what's down, what's left and right anymore. It's okay if I watch this kind of thing on the screen. I am not subject to these sins all the while subjecting yourself to the screen that is showing you things that are detestable to God things that mock and ridicule his law and good order. The things that you secretly lust after instead of the goodness of God. We start saying things like, Ah, it's okay if we do such and such things together because we'll get married anyway. Or, Ah, that stuff is so ancient, so impractical. Who can keep pure like that these days? Besides, Jesus will forgive us. It's no different from the Corinthians, and Paul is saying that it's no different from the Israelites who set up the golden calf and dared to call that monstrosity God. In Numbers 25, it says that the people began to whore themselves with the daughters of Moab. The Moabites would have this practice and they would be worshiping Baal on Peor. Peor is a mountain, right? So Baal, Peor, it's a high place. And the people of God would whore themselves with the daughters of Moab, it says in Numbers 25.1. And then in verse 2, goes. it's included bowing down in worship to it, eating together and playing. It was because of this that God would send a plague killing 23,000 people. 24,000 in total from the event, as it says in Numbers, but 23,000 in a day. And this should give us an idea of how God views sexual immorality, which includes premarital and extramarital sex. Because what just starts out with sex isn't really just sex. Sexual immorality and idolatry always, always go hand in hand. Perhaps this is a good way, as Paul is explaining it to the Corinthians, for us then to remind ourselves how God views idolatry and sexual immorality. He killed 23,000 people in one day. And in verse 9 and 10, it says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble." As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So, when we do this, what are we de facto doing? What are we essentially doing? The Bible says that we are putting Christ to the test. Here, Paul is equating God with Christ. And yes, it's because Christ is Lord, because it's written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6.16, which Jesus also quotes during the temptations that the devil put him through. In Numbers 21, the people spoke against God and Moses. This is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Apparently referring to the manna that God gave. That's when God would send fiery serpents among the people and many died. Then the people would go back to Moses and say, we have sinned. And then he, Moses, would take a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and raise it up, and whoever would look on the bronze serpent would live. This was a symbol of Christ. It's when you look down and trample on the things of God that we see you get bit and you get punished. However, this is what Jesus says about it. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, shall the Son of Man be lifted up, So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Right before the verse that you all know, this is John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Or another example that they give is you can grumble and then get destroyed by the destroyer. And these are all connected. I'm putting it all together, hopefully stringing it, not completing it because it does get completed. What does grumbling have to do with idolatry, with sexual immorality, with all these things? What grumbling is, when you complain, when you gripe, grumbling is a failure to be satisfied with God's will for your life. Grumbling is a failure to be satisfied with God's will for your life. It means that when you grumble and complain, what you're really saying is, I don't think you got this one right, God. And I think I know better than you. This is what Paul learned, too. And this is why he responds in Philippians 4.11, in whatever situation, I have learned to be content." Christians today are full of malcontent and discontent. How come I'm not married? How come I had to marry him or her? How come I have no kids? How come I only have one kid? Only boys, only girls. Why do I have this job? How come I have this job? Why is it that I'm living paycheck to paycheck? Why do I drive this car? Why can't I drive that car? Why can't I live in this neighborhood, buy this house, go to this restaurant, and eat freely? So what does this have to do with the destroyer? In number 16, the Kohathites were led by this guy named Korah, and he would stage a coup. They would gather against Moses and Aaron and say, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And that might sound familiar. Paraphrased, it's, What makes you think you're better than us? Aren't we all holy? A royal priesthood. Peter says that in his epistle. What gives you the right to rule over us? And instead of explaining that God chooses certain men to lead his people, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Now, falling on your face is number one, humbling yourself, and or number two, a response of absolute terror. That's what we see in the Bible. And I don't think Moses was in terror of the Kohathites or Korah. He responds to them in a matter-of-fact manner, right? He goes, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his. You see, we need to know who the Kohathites were. The Kohathites were one of the most privileged groups in all of Israel. They were even singled out above the other Levites. They were part of the Levitical group. They were part of the Levites. And they were singled out even among the Levites because they were to handle the most holy things in the tabernacle. And in their privilege, they put themselves in great danger. They thought They deserved more. Instead of gratitude, they were filled with grumbling, bitterness, and complaint. This doesn't happen here, so I'll use this example. It's like a deacon going to an elder and saying, I'm ordained too. You're an elder, but you're not that much better than me. Instead of this deacon being thankful that God would give him such a high position in the church to serve others, Moses falls on his face, truly a humble man if there was. And if there was any terror, I believe it was terror from wondering what God might do to them. Because the destroyer does come and swallows up everyone from that camp that stood against Moses and Aaron, and the rest who were lighting the incense and fire would come out and consume 250 of them. The next day, all the people of Moses, all the people of Israel, they saw all this happen. Literally, the ground opened up and swallowed every one of those people complaining, bitter angry, saying, who do you think you are, Moses? You're just a man just like me. And they saw this happen. And so the next day, all the people would go up to Moses and they go, wow, that was kind of crazy. I guess we should stop complaining. Nope, they don't do that. It says in verse 41 that they grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. First of all, Moses and Aaron did nothing. It was God. But people nonetheless just need to complain. You don't like this rule. You don't like that rule. You don't like this outcome. You don't want this to happen. And it's just complaint after complaint after complaint. And they would set themselves up to overtake Moses and Aaron after what happened. But before they could, take, they could overtake Moses and Aaron, the glory cloud would come down and settle upon the tabernacle. God would tell Moses and Aaron to get away as far as they could from the rest of the people. And a plague would immediately start killing people. Aaron then would have to take a censer. A censer is something that holds incense, right? A censer, he would have to take a censer and have to, he'd have to start running. So you can imagine this happening in real time. What happens, this glory cloud descends. God is like, get away from these people. And immediately what is hitting them and rippling out is a plague and people are just dropping dead. Aaron would run with the censer and as people are dropping dead, Aaron, as he passes it, to finally get to the people who haven't died yet and when he gets right there, the plague stops. He ran into the middle of the people for God told him this is how you're going to make atonement for them. And by the time he reached the people, 14,700 were dead. Idolatry is all these things. We think that just because we don't make little wooden dolls and bow down to them, that we're not guilty of idolatry. But that's not true. Idolatry is when you test the Lord your God. When you say, His will is not good. His grace is not sufficient. It's when instead of Thanksgiving spilling out of your mouth, it's gripes coming out through gritted teeth. And this is what the Corinthians did. They thought, yes, we are Christians, but we're going to do everything that we used to do. God will forgive me, right? Isn't that grace? I mean, I'm saved, so how bad could it be? Paul gives the example of how bad it could be by showing them what God did to the Israelites in their idolatry. Paul is warning that this lack of self-denial and self-discipline will lead them to abusing their freedom. They will fall into idolatry, into sexual immorality, thereby testing God in your complaining and griping, all the while saying, but God is gracious. God may be gracious, but your life will be miserable. These things are here to teach us not to fall into the same deceit as it did the Corinthians and before them, the Israelites. For us to be content, for us to be content, trusting His goodwill, His perfect will is being carried out is a necessity. We must trust that His good and perfect will is being carried out. In that trust, we also have the example of Jesus Christ that guides us in our freedom. To lay it down when it comes to winning people over to Christ and to not abuse it, thereby disqualifying us. I see so many now with only a care for themselves, not caring about who they can win over. This is what the scriptures say, you you, you using your freedom to gratify the flesh. I see even more people, though, these days, that have disqualified themselves. They forget the heart of our Savior when he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, and Jesus is telling his disciples, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, before he said this, I want you to remember the heart of Christ because this is what it says in the Bible, that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. His insides were moved because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Paul reminds us that we don't have freedom just to serve ourselves, but we have freedom to serve others. That's exactly what Christ did because he had compassion on us. That's how you were saved. Didn't you hear the gospel from someone who preached it and proclaimed it and lived it? And now, isn't your heart Burning too because of the Holy Spirit, because He's given you the new heart, a new creation. You are a new creation. He's given you a new heart. And your heart also breaks for those that do not know Christ or see the beauty and majesty of who He is. And should our hearts reflect that? And that's what we are being reminded of in the scriptures. When we run the race, it isn't just to minimally do it, to go at the minimum pace, but it's to win. Why? Because we want to please our Savior. Because we want to run into His majesty and beauty. We can't wait to see Him again and be like, Jesus, I did it. I'm home. That's what we want to do. That's the heart that we have because Christ has given us a new heart now. Why then would you use it to abuse and ridicule and mock and trample on others instead of serving them as we have been served? And this is the warning and admonition that we have that Christ Jesus, he lived this life for us. And we also live our lives according to his will, obedient to what he teaches us, because this pleases him, glorifies him, and it brings us joy, because that's what we were made to do. So friends, place your trust in him. This is not a political statement. This is a statement from God saying we must be a people that place our trust in the one true and only God, Jehovah. Let's pray. Instead of trusting in you, We wanted to follow our own devices and schemes. Instead of trusting in you, we wanted to satisfy our own flesh and lusts. But we thank you, Lord, that this morning we can see that all of Scripture can be applied to our lives. How the faithfulness of even a few is thrilling to you. We want to marvel at your word week by week, and we ask that your spirit would empower us to live a life trusting in your word and living a life of obedience. The people here, oh God, the people here want to know your truth deeply. They want to grapple with the sin in their lives and not only grapple with it, but overcome it by your grace. Look at those who struggle with compassion and help them to trust upon you as their shepherd. Let's take this time to pray and lift up your hearts to the Lord, asking that He be your God, your shepherd that will lead you even though you would go through the valley of the shadow of death, that He is the one that is with you and will comfort you and be with you Always, let's take this time to pray.